0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Lots of stuff to look forward to. Things you're aspiring to. And then a couple years pass, and it's now, I can't wait to graduate and go to college because I'm going to get some freedom Oh, I need that. That'll be so good. And then it's, I can't wait to graduate from college and get a real job. That will be the life. Or, I can't wait to finally marry her or marry him. Start to build a family. And it'll be so nice to not make entry-level wages anymore. Start making some real money. Be able to afford maybe a nice trip somewhere or, or a house or maybe a nicer house. And then it's, I can't wait to get a second car or a second car that actually runs or that new set of dishes or to see the kids start to grow up and and hit those stages. Nice to get a promotion with some more responsibility and some more authority and, and a nicer paycheck. That'll be great. And when that happens, we'll be set. And years and years of life go on like this. And for decades, really, there's all of this that we're looking forward to that we're thinking about, that we're planning towards, that we're, that we're working towards, dreaming of how things will get when we finally arrive there. But as the years wear on, something happens. For all these decades, you've been climbing the slope, working up, thinking and planning and hoping, and then eventually what happens is you crest. And you realize that from here on, it's all downhill. This is, this is all that I can hope for. I'm not going to get promoted again. I'm never going to have another toddler, middle schooler, teenager. The nest is permanently empty. This is the most money I'm ever going to make, the nicest house we're ever going to live in, the best health that I can hope to have. What happens at that point? What happens in here at that point? Well, you you find out which wall your ladder's leaning against, so to speak. You find out, you look in, and you find out what you've built your life on, what sustained your heart, what you've been hoping in and aspiring to, essentially what you've looked to for life. And how sad it is, or how sad it will be for those of us who haven't quite gotten there yet, how sad it is to realize that you've spent a lifetime seeking after perishables. Objects of your affections that have led you on and led you on, but in the end failed to deliver the goods. Of peace and joy and internal rest. That which you've hoped for has shown itself to be hollow. This morning we see Jesus warn us about that and offer us an alternative. Another place to look for life amidst this life. Not in the things here, but somewhere else. Today we're in John chapter 6. We look at the second part of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Last week we looked at the incident itself where Jesus fed 5,000 men and probably thousands more women and children, and he did it from the meagrest of all resources, a poor boy's lunch. We saw that last week, and today's text occurs on the very next day, right after these events. The same crowds meet up again with Jesus, and he takes time to explain to them some things that were hard for them to embrace, hard for them and also sometimes hard for us i read the text, John 6, verses 22 to 59. It's a long text, a lengthy passage. I'm going to read the whole thing, and it's not printed in your bulletin today because of its length, so you have to follow along in your own Bible. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then I'll go back through and walk through the, the first part that sets up the, the teaching section of this, of this chapter. And then I'll talk about, finally after walking back through that, talk about three main points. So let me read the passage first, John 6, beginning in verse 22. On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Another boats from Tiberias came near the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples They themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, Well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him then, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? you? What work do you perform? You know, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The next day, following this miraculous feeding, begins with the crowd looking for Jesus. Evidently, many of them had stayed right there in that same place expecting more from him, but when they got the next day, they couldn't find him. He was gone. So they seek him. They go across the lake to Capernaum. Verse 24. And so far, that looks pretty good. They're seeking after Jesus. That's good. But when they find him they, they cur- and curiously ask him when he got there, Jesus cuts the chase. He exposes them and ratchets up the conversation. Truly, truly. amen. Amen. This is surely the case. That's a solemn introduction. It occurs several times in this passage. What I'm about to say is absolutely true and demands attention. What that means. You seek me, but you do not seek me for the right reason, which actually means that you don't seek me at all. He'd seen the signs, verses 2 and 14. But they hadn't actually seen the signs. As usual, there are two levels of conversation going on here. John does this a lot. They saw the sick healed with their eyes. They saw the bread multiplied and thousands fed. Yes, they saw that. But they didn't properly see the signs as pointers, pointing to the identity of Jesus and to his mission. These people had seen something of Jesus and they were pursuing him because he'd filled their bellies. And they reasoned, he can do that again. He probably will do that again. And that's what they were really after. They were concerned with seeking life in what lies right down here. And this guy can give it to me. That's what I want. That's why they followed him. That's what's motivating them. But Jesus is captivated and motivated by something more. And so he confronts them. Verse 27. There is far more to be concerned with here than just the physical. It's not just physical life. It's spiritual life. That's what he's most interested in talking about. That's what the Father's sealed one, that is, his his set-aside, his anointed one, his marked-off one, Jesus, his envoy. That's what this sealed one has come to talk about, and that's what you're supposed to seek him for. That kind of life. And they hear that, but they immediately put a legalistic, works-based spin on that. They hear Jesus say, labor for it, he means pursue it. And they translate that into do a work. And, and so they literally ask him, what, what, what must we do to work the works that God requires? Three times, do the works works. What what do we want to what do you want us to do? Tell us. And, and if it seems good, we'll get it done. What should we do? Believe is his answer. Believe. That's the work that God requires. And, of course, it isn't a work at all. It's the ceasing of work and the trusting of your heart. That's what believe means, to entrust yourself to him. The work of God is this, that you believe in the one he has sent. And, of course, they realize that he's talking about himself, but they're hesitant still. Before they believe, they want a sign to prove that they should believe in him. We might have thought that feeding the 5,000 was sign enough, but they want a little more than that. Because if they're talking about this Jesus surpassing Moses, well, the bread of Moses came day after day for 40 years, excluding Sabbaths. Your bread only came once. Essentially, they say, do that again. Let's see that again. Your bread should surpass his bread if you surpass him. Let's see that again. Show us some other sign. But Jesus responds with a second, truly. Truly. In verse 32, that wasn't Moses, that was God. He makes that point and then uses it to switch the analogy. Basically, he says, God provided that food, not some prophet. And let me tell you about this bread. He seamlessly changes the analogy. We were talking about Jesus providing bread, and now we're about to talk about Jesus as bread. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 41, they grumbled because he had said to them, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 48. I am the bread of life. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. I am, I am, I am, I am. Four times in this passage. Something to note there. Now, on the one hand, as we talked about this last week, on the one hand, it's just a simple identifier. It's, it's me. That's an intriguing claim. What's the bread that comes down from God to give life? Me. It's me. Bread is a person. It's an intriguing claim. But it has to go beyond that. Because this phrase, I am, it's also the name of God. God. If you look in your Bibles, you see that in the Old Testament, the word Lord written in all capital letters, that's the name of God that translates into I am. So he's looking at this, he's interacting with them, and he's saying, I am, repeatedly. He's taking the name of God onto himself frequently. So there's a subtle, or perhaps not too subtle, allusion here to God himself. Who has God sent down as bread from heaven to give life to the world? Who has the I am sent down? The I am. God has sent God to be bread, to give life to people. That's the main point. Made a bunch of different ways throughout this passage. This passage goes back and forth, it twists and turns, lots of different analogies, but that's the main point. We're going to look at it in three different aspects here. We look at some of the teaching that he gives after this. But essentially, if you want to boil all this down to one simple point, here it is, the main theme. Christ is life. Embrace Him. Christ is life. Jesus is life. Embrace Him. John says this a hundred different ways throughout this book. Here it is again. Christ is the bread that gives life embrace him, come to him, believe in him, feed on him, eat and drink him, etc., etc., throughout this passage. That's the call coming from Jesus here. Approach that in three main aspects. Let's start with the first one. The first main aspect of this call is related to what Jesus means to be for his people. Last week the focus was on how he provided physically, provided for their physical life, the physical needs they had. Well, that was all a setup create a space in which he could talk about what he's really interested in, in bringing up, the spiritual life. That's what he's most concerned with. He comes of to that today. Here's, here's the first point here. Life is found only in Jesus. First aspect of this main overarching theme about Christ's life is that life is found only in Jesus. Spiritual, blessed, happy, contented, peaceful, joyous life found in Jesus. I'm going to focus on just one verse and use that to address this this main teaching here. Look at verse 35. Up till 35, he's been going back and forth with the crowd as we we walk through that a little bit, building up to this point. And then here's this this first significant declaration to them. It's a a declaration, a pronouncement that he follows on with, with a promise. I am the bread of life. The declaration and then the promise Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. He's the true bread, and whoever comes to him shall not hunger. Right now, in coming to Jesus, the hunger of life is fed and satisfied. What is that hunger? What's he talking about? Well, it's desire, it's longing for more, more peace, more joy. More contentment, more worthwhile, vital passion in life. It's the hope for significance that's never quite met here. It's the longing for safety, for the end of the struggle, for harmony, for justice, hunger. It's hard to put your finger on exactly what it is in each person's life. It's really hard for me to put it on, put my finger on what it is in your life. But we all know it. We all live here and there's something that's just not quite right here in this fallen world. We think we need this and we chase after it and we get it and no sooner do we get it than we realize that's not quite it. And we chase over here after something else and no sooner do we get it than we realize "Mm, that's not what I was looking for. Back and forth. We're searching. It's just not quite right here. Something's off and we can't ever permanently fix it. It keeps coming back. We want it to be fixed, though. We hunger for it. We desire it. We long for it. That's the hunger. But in coming to Jesus, coming, that word coming, is in the present tense. It means right now and continually coming to Him. In coming to Jesus, that hunger is dealt with. It ends. Wait a minute, though. Did you just say that we all know this hunger, that it's, it's a constant part of life? Yes. How is it that we who know Jesus know this hunger then? How does that work? Well, it's, we struggle with the coming to Jesus part. We come to him, and then we fall away from him a little bit. We come to him this hour, but then turn away a little bit. It's like there's a table with a vast feast on it, and we have a hard time staying at the, in the chair. It's part of our fallen nature is that we are prone to wander. Lord, I know it. Prone to leave the one I love. It's in our fallen nature. We're like that. But in coming to Him, coming to the table to feast on Him, hunger's dealt with. Or to switch the analogy a little bit, the thirst is quenched. Same main point. He's just talking about this internal desire and longing switches it to get a little different angle. Incidentally, also when he switches to thirst, there's a little grammar change there too that points us into the future. And notice he adds the word never. It's a stronger word than not. It's as if Jesus is saying, the desire is dealt with right now as you come to me, and it will be forever permanently eliminated one day. Dealt with right now and once forever. There is a time coming when we will feast on Christ in unhindered quantities with unhindered intimacy, and we will find him to be all that we've ever needed, all that we've ever wanted, all we were ever made for. That day is coming and can be felt a little bit right now. How is that? That's a good question. I don't fully know the answer to how that works. I don't. The best that I can do is observe what I chase here and then think about how Christ meets that, how Christ might satisfy that. So I look at my life and, and I realize that here on this earth, I look for, I chase after honor and significance. And so that I think, well, when the God of the universe over the course of all eternity, undertakes to reveal Himself to me more and more and more forever and ever and ever. In addition to being intrigued and delighted by all that I see, I think I will also feel honored and significant, be able to sit at His feet and be taught by Him when I should have been cast out. I think that will satisfy some of that desire for honor and significance. I also look and I say, you know, I I look for pleasure in the creation. I do. And I can imagine how, in Christ's renewed world, with glimpses of His magnificence shot through everything, I can imagine how, interacting with the creation, interacting with gadgets and and. Toys and various things, interacting with that stuff with Christ's beauty shot through it clearly for me to see, that'll be fun, pleasurable, desirable, delightful, even. I also look out and I notice that I long for relationship. I do. And there will be relationship with Him one day and with His people, some of whom I know right now, some of whom I will enjoy meeting. I can imagine how this would end my hunger. And I taste of it now, but through a glass dimly. When I meet God in the majesty of Isaiah, I behold His beauty in the Psalms, or I enjoy His intricacy in the details of the book of Hebrews. When I experience Him in the intimacy of heartfelt prayer, in the companionship of other people, when I walk through the mountains and through the forests and see His handiwork. I glimpse it now. I meet with Him and find some of my desire met and I can imagine one day never hungering again as all of that with the curse removed floods over me and fills me. And He is available to you now too if you'll come to Him. If you'll come today to Him and again today and again today and the next hour and the next hour and tomorrow and the day after. You come, you can find him now. And if you come now, you'll find him forever. Do not, do not spend your energy laboring for food that perishes. You can succeed in heaping up mounds of such food, chasing after all kinds of other stuff, thinking that this is where you find life. You can pile up mounds of it, but you're going to find that in the end, it was a mountainous, tremendous, sorrowful failure. Cotton candy looks good, it tastes sweet, but fundamentally it's just air. A little bit of sugar. The fathers of Israel ate that kind of bread, and they all died in the desert. They didn't enjoy the pleasurable presence of God for 40 years, and then they died and never reached the land of his promised rest. That's just as much a lesson to us as it was to Jesus' original Jewish audience. Because we are just as likely to spend our lives building taller and taller ladders, reaching for more and more that are still leaning against the wrong wall. Chasing after stuff that we think will satisfy but doesn't. Seek the food that endures to eternal life, Jesus. In Jesus alone is life. First and most significant aspect of this passage. The second main aspect surfaced here, touch, is touched on several times in verses 37 to 45. Here it is: God gives life to whom He chooses. God gives life to whom he chooses. The satisfied life of rest in Jesus is a gift of God's grace that he gives as he determines. It's not earned or deserved or merited in any way whatsoever. And realizing this should cause us to marvel at God and it should also humble us. Let's see how Jesus explains this and follow this closely. This can get a little... A little difficult here. Verse 37. Responding to those who have seen him and have not believed, he says, and watch for the chain of events here. There's a chain here. We're going to see it a couple times. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. So there's some group of individuals given to the Son by the Father, and 100% of them come to him. See that? Continuing on. And whoever comes to me, all those who were given, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In other words, I'm going to keep them. They won't be lost. Jesus is using a grammar form in which by denying one option, he's affirming the opposite, kind of like when we say, not bad. What we mean is good. That's what he's saying here, and that becomes uh, blatantly obvious when we keep reading. Verse 38. For I have come not to do my Father's will i come to do the Father's will. What's that? Verse 39. I won't lose any of all that he has given me, but instead raise them up at the last day. And then verse 40 repeats it for emphasis. Those who look and believe, same as coming to him, I will raise up at the last day. So do you see the chain of events there? The Father gives some to the Son. 100% of those given ones come to the Son by faith. And then the Son does the will of the Father and keeps 100% of them until they are all raised up at the resurrection at the end. See the chain. Notice carefully, where did it start? Not with people deciding to come. Notice that carefully. But with the Father deciding to give some to the Son. That's where the chain starts. Then those given come and believe and are saved. There's a clear chain there. Verse 44, again, Jesus says essentially the same thing. Different words, same idea. Another chain of events. And notice again who makes the first decisive move. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. It's not just rare, it's impossible. It never happens, he says. Unless first the Father draws that person. God must first decide. God's got the first step here. He determines, I will draw that person right there, and then that person comes. And then after that, when she comes, undeserved, you know, unmerited, God's made a decision there, but that person then comes, and then Jesus raises him up. See that in the next verse. This drawing of God, it's not a universal drawing. He doesn't draw everybody. Next sentence. No one comes unless the Father draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Raising up again, like repeated from above. Conclusion to the chain of drawing. There's a drawing, a coming, and a raising. You see that there? Three groups of people. And unless we're ready to affirm that everybody is raised up to life at the end, which we're not, it's universalism, and we've got to walk backwards and say, some subset is raised up because some subset came because some subset was drawn. That's what God's doing here. Now, this is pretty theologically heavy. I reckon, recognize that. Probably challenging for some of us. And we could go further into it and look at it in more detail. We could look down at the next verse and, and see that the all whom Jesus, who the Father teaches there, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 54, we'd look at that and we'd realize that the all are the people of God, not everybody. It's God's people. All of them is who he teaches. We look at that or we could look at other things. And if you want to afterwards, we can. But I'm really more interested right now to stay in this context. And I'm, I'm drawn in by a question. As I observe here, that Jesus is launching into this for a reason. He's making a point. He's making the point that God gives life to whom God chooses, God's the first mover in this chain of events. And he's making this point with non-believing Jews who have seen him but do not believe. Remember, 36, where we started? And he also makes the same point over in verses 64 and 65. Come to that next time in a couple weeks when we're back in, in John. But he says there in 64, frankly, he just says, some of you don't believe, I realize that. 65, in fact, no one can, unless it is granted him by the Father. Same basic point. Why is he doing this? A seminary class might launch into some abstract thing like this, but why is Jesus bringing this teaching up with non-believers who are coming at him? I think he means to create two responses in his original audience and in us as we read it. Two responses. Humility and confidence. Might seem like odd pairs, aren't they? Opposites, but I think they fit together here. Two things, humility and confidence. The Humility first. In in explaining this, Jesus is taking the human being out of the driver's seat, is he not? God is the first actor. He's taking us out of the driver's seat. They're standing there over him. And people throughout all of history, we always do this because we're human beings, it's in our nature. They're standing there over him, demanding a sign, questioning his claims and his authority, grumbling about him and what he says. Prove it to us. Come on, make your case. Give the evidence. We'll determine who you are and what becomes of you. Jesus says, no you won't. We, my Father and I, we determine who you are and what becomes of you. It's pretty heavy. Men and women, that is God's right with his creatures. We are clay in the potter's hands. That is his right. We need to take care in how we approach him. Now I don't mean to communicate any vindictiveness on Jesus' part here or any any boastful pride or something like that, but there is a warning here. And it should leave the careful listener realizing that life, this life that we've been been talking about, this real life, Substantial, blessed, happy life forever hinges on God. On God, apart from any and all obligation, granting me something. Granting you something. It's up to Him. I am completely at His mercy. It is a gift. And He gives it in such a way, not by force, but in such a way that all receive it to whom He gives it. All that the Father gives come to the Son, and the Son raises them up. That's how He gives this gift. That's how it's received. It's a marvelous thing. It's a blessed thing, but it also means that you and I don't deserve it, and we have no leverage on God. Can't force Him into anything. There's a humbling effect in this teaching. We approach Him. We shouldn't presume, we approach Him to have the final say or or to say, show us a sign or approve it, but we shouldn't say, pray humbly, please. Have mercy on me, a sinner. All that you owe to me, God, I realize all that you owe to me is wrath. Judgment for the, the habit of my life, chasing after everything else and trying to replace you with it. That's idolatry. I do that all the time. And all that you owe me is wrath, but won't you please have mercy on me? Be gracious to me, I plead with you. I have no way to obligate you, please. It should humble us like that. It should also give us confidence. God's plan doesn't fail. It doesn't. Even if he comes to his own and his own reject him, it actually turned out to be part of the plan, in fact. Even if this crowd, the whole lot of it, rejects him. Even if the whole nation rejects him. Even if the whole world, by and large, rejects him. It's not a popularity contest. God saves whom he wills to save. And he saves them. He gives them this life and they have it. Forever. That should give us confidence. When he gives you this gift, you have it, you can't follow it up. He knows who you are, forgives you, he gives you life, and you have it. It will not fail. God gives life to whom he chooses. That's the second point. The final point from this text tells us how to receive this gift. Once to start, but also continually, day by day thereafter. third clear concept in this passage is the necessity of personal faith. I'm going to be a little more brief here, not because it is less important, but because it is so important that John says it every week. It's in every passage, and so I talk about it all of the time. I'm going to be a little more brief with it. It's a consistent theme. Life in Jesus, this life we've been talking about, comes through faith. Life is found only in Jesus. It's a gift of God by grace, and it comes through faith. It is the means by which this salvation is applied. You could walk through this passage and count up the references or the illusions or the calls and challenges to faith, coming to Jesus, believing in Jesus, looking to the Son, believing, eating the bread, feeding on the flesh, drinking the blood, all of these ways, it's all the same thing. The number of times is not as important as, the, as just the observation that it's all over the place. He keeps coming back to it again and again and again. You must, he keeps pressing on us, you must, just must, internalize and trust Jesus. Just hearing these truths about how life is found in Christ and how God gives it to people, just hearing those truths and believing them is not enough You must trust yourself to Jesus personally. There's a vast difference between those two things. I know a whole bunch of stuff about Abraham Lincoln. He was the 16th president of the United States. He he was president during the American Civil War. He was assassinated. He was born in Kentucky, but spent most of his life growing up in Illinois. He was a lawyer. I've been to the house he owned, etc., I've even read a lot of things that he's written or or said, and I've memorized some of them, and I could quote them to you, chapter and verse. But I don't trust him for anything. Not a thing. I don't trust him for anything in my life. I don't trust him for anything in this world. I don't trust him for anything in the next world. Nothing. So as the Bible's language, as the Bible uses the language, believe, it would mean I do not believe in Abraham Lincoln. I do not trust in him. For anything at all. Do you believe in? Do you trust in Jesus? You must embrace Him and take Him fully into yourself if you want to live. I'm not talking about knowing things. I'm talking about owning Him, embracing Him by faith. I know that most of you this morning will answer, yes, I do trust Jesus. In a very real sense, you do of course and you can trust that one day that hunger for all of time will end but what about right now what about right now that coming to him that coming to him hour by hour and day by day it's by faith there are all kinds of other things out here that will lure you and you sometimes it's hard to see all the evidence weighing you say but I believe Jesus is what I need I come to him this hour and the next, and the next. Take a look at verse 56. We already saw up in verse 35 that coming was in the present tense. Well, look at 56 and the three verbs there. Feeds, and drinks, and abides. Those are all in the present tense too. The point that he's trying to communicate is that it's all meant to happen now and continually. We are meant to feed on him, come to him, drink him in. Like you, you, know, you devour a book or you swallow a story. You're taking something in and owning it. Feed on him now and always. Abide with him now and always. And the hunger ends. That happens by faith. Looking elsewhere is foolish. It leaves you hungry and it is sin. Replacing him with something else. Please don't get lost in all the mixed metaphors in this passage or the ones that I've thrown out. It's easy to get confused as to what we're talking about with what. You know this already. This passage is just reminding you of it. Don't chase other things. Do come to Jesus. And come again and again and again always. That's, That's the issue. And don't chase Jesus for the other stuff, using him like a vending machine to give you the other things that you really want, because that's actually you still thinking life comes from them and he's the way to get it. Come to him for him In His presence, there's fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's Him, and all the other stuff will be added unto you. Come to Christ for Christ's sake. Come to get Him. And if you've never come to Christ yet at all, come to Him. I hope that you sit here and that there's a hunger inside of you that's gnawing you up. It's eating you alive on the inside. I hope that. That might sound kind of mean. A little odd. You hope for my internal angst? That's very nice of you. Thank you. Here's what I mean. I hope that God is teaching you something. That everything else that you chase in life does not satisfy. And by teaching you all that, He's going to highlight the one thing that does, Him. I hope that He teaches you that, and that you come to Him. Verse 51, Jesus talks about how the bread of life He's going to give for the world is His flesh. He's working on the eating analogy, but it's also an allusion to something, the cross. The sin of chasing after other things cannot just be ignored or wiped away. It has to be dealt with. And when Christ came, He provided a way for it to be dealt with. The cross, that's why He died. That He might pay the penalty due to that sin. You can come to Him and find Him to cover that penalty for you and remove the wrath of God from you, and you'll find life hunger satisfied and thirst quenched by faith. Christ is life. Embrace Him.
0: Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah.